It is very good to be with you to study God's Word. In the, uh, past, in the last month, we began to study the book of Revelation. And if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, it's very helpful to be familiar with the book of Daniel. Much of the imagery in Revelation, particularly in chapter 1, comes from the book of Daniel. Now, some of it comes from Zechariah and uh, some from Ezekiel. Some of it is general in concept, but much of it is very specific to Daniel chapter 10. In Revelation 1, John sees a divine figure whose attributes will then be interspersed in the seven letters that follow. In the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3 will be seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And attributes of this figure will be interspersed uh, throughout the seven letters, so it's important to understand where they come from. Again, most of them will come from Daniel chapter 10. So let's read Daniel chapter 10 and consider both what it says to Revelation 1, as well as what, is, what it says to those of us seeking to be disciples of Jesus in our lives today. So I'll read, I'll just start with the first six verses and we'll read the rest as we go on through the message. Daniel chapter 10, starting with verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, just as you have spoken to your people in the past, would you speak to us this morning? And would you give us hearts that would respond to your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this vision from Revelation, from Daniel 10, it's helpful to reread just a few verses from, from Revelation 1 to see the connection. So I'll reread uh, Revelation 1, verses 12 to 15 that we heard, that we studied a couple of weeks ago. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame, a fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. What we'll see in Revelation coming from the book of Daniel is a vision of a kingly priest who comes, who cares for his people and judges his people in the churches. And that reveals that God is a king. God is a great king who governs and rules over every human kingdom. Well, as we see this vision, this vision that John sees in Revelation, it comes from the book of Daniel. The terms are virtually identical. The son of man language comes from Daniel chapter 7. Now, that would be a separate sermon or series of sermons in itself. But in Daniel 7, there's a, 
vision of the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, representing God the Father. And then at the end of that vision, one like a son of man comes. But he's riding on the clouds, an indication that this also is a divine figure. And so this son of man approaches the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom. So the son of man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. So it's very important to understand that this son of man figure is from Daniel 7. But the other language is that of the ancient of days, this white hair. Unlike the modern Western world, in the ancient world, age was respected. And that white hair uh, signifies age and experience and wisdom. So the ancient of days is one that has eternal wisdom, perfect knowledge, and experience to fully understand the wisdom needed for all things. And the lightning and the fiery language reflects the language of righteous judgment. It's an image of God's judgment coming from that very throne. That's Daniel 7. But in Daniel 10, the text that we read, it describes the appearance of a man with a long linen robe, with the golden sash, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, and voice like the roar of many waters. The long robe, the linen robe, uh, indicates it's a priestly figure, really a kingly priestly figure. And in Revelation, we see this is the priest attending to the lampstands in the temple, which we understand to be Jesus caring for his churches. And that's, that's the Revelation 1 piece. His eyes are like fire. That meaning, means he's coming to bring judgment. In the book of Daniel, we read about the judgment that God is ultimately working out against the nations that are opposing the people of God. In multiple visions in Daniel, we see these four kingdoms that will be Babylon and uh, Persia and Greece and Rome. And they're the nations that oppress the people of God, the territory of Jerusalem and of Israel. Well, God is bringing his righteous judgment against those nations. But at the same time, God is bringing his righteous judgment against his own people who do not listen to his word. Perhaps you remember the phrase that we'll meet in most of those seven letters to follow that we'll study in the coming weeks. The phrase, but I have this against you. So God is speaking to his own people, reminding them that he will bring disciplinary measures against them should they hear the word of God and not respond to the warnings that he's given them. So we recognize that this judgment is not just for them, it's also for us within. It even makes sense if you think about the people in the book of Daniel in Babylon. Why were they in Babylon? Because God sent them there. It was his disciplinary action because of their idolatry. Then we see the term, the voices like a multitude. Again, this is the ancient world. They didn't have the volume knob to turn it up. But this is a very loud voice. This is a very weighty voice. This is a voice that requires that we pay attention because it's the voice of God. The message speaking will be the most important message that we hear. What Daniel is doing is he's trying to make us understand that it is God himself who is speaking. This is a theophany, an appearance of God. Now what's interesting is that this is occurring not in the temple, not in Israel, but in Babylon, or now Persia, the area governed by Persia. Just like in Ezekiel chapter 1, where some of this same language is found, God is appearing to his people, 
But he's not appearing in the promised land. He's appearing outside the land, even in their time of exile, even in their time of chaos and distress. God comes and appears and speaks to his people. You may remember in Ezekiel 1, that's the vision of the wheels. What do the wheels mean? It means God is mobile. He's not a local tribal deity. He is mobile. He rules, governs, appears, acts all over the world. Now, in Daniel 10, it's a little complex. The, first, the language of the verses we read sure sounds like God appearing. But then in the next passage, starting in, in verse 10, it appears to be an angel speaking. Well, welcome to apocalyptic literature. We have visionary language and much imagery and description, and it's not always clear. But if you look at chapter 12, which is the end of this section, the angel appears and delivers the vision in 10, which is explained in 11, and is concluded in chapter 12. And there you see the two angels, one on each side of the bank of the river, and the man in the lin- dressed in linen. And so it suggests that there's a, an appearance of God, and then the one angel here, and then the two in chapter 12. Well, this all becomes much clearer in Revelation, because in Revelation it's clear that the Son of Man is Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to care for his people with words of encouragement and words of warning. God, Jesus is God, and Jesus is our King, coming to appear to us. But there's one more element I want to touch on uh, from Daniel chapter 10, and that's, it's, the, the nuance is subtle, but the meaning is extremely important. He describes this figure as, uh, as having legs like burnished bronze. If you think of the book of Daniel and you think of uh, polished metal and a, and a luminary figure, that draws us back to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he didn't remember. Daniel tells it to him. It's of this statue with a head of gold and chest of silver and legs of bronze and feet of clay and iron. It's this figure and it represents the kingdoms of man. It represents human kingdoms. So in this echo in chapter 10, we're invited to compare the kingdoms of man with the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of man, which will be destroyed by a very small stone, with the kingdom of God, who appears wherever he wills and decrees exactly what will happen with all these human kingdoms. The book of Daniel reflects on, uh, names many kings. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar, Darius, uh, and now Cyrus. But the message is clear. There's only one king who rules, and that is our Lord God. And with that stone, he will take down the statue. If you look at chapter 7, the Son of Man, chapter 7 begins with a description of four extraterrestrial, not-of-this-world carnivorous beasts with claws and gnashing teeth that come to destroy and devour and kill. And with a word, they are judged and destroyed. And the one who inherits the kingdom that will never cease is the one like a son of man. So the message of Daniel is very clear. There's one true king who ultimately rules over every human kingdom. So I'd like to pause here and ask us to reflect. Do we believe this? Do we believe that there's one, that God is a king? 
that God is a king who rules today, right now, March 7th, 2021? You see, in Daniel's time, this is the third year of Cyrus. The exiles have returned, at least a group of them, have returned the previous year. And I suspect Daniel was wondering, it seems like the exile is over. It seems like things should be back to normal, but I'm not so sure. And so he prays and he seeks the Lord and he gets this word from the Lord. I wonder about us. The pandemic seems to be going in the right direction. The vaccine seems to be bringing a measure of improvement and security. But somehow we wonder, are things going to get better or not? We get very nervous or angry or fearful or lose hope when the wrong people seem to control our nation, our city, our society, when the voices of social media influencers govern us in ways we don't like. We're afraid that if the right people aren't in charge, there'll be chaos, despair, and we give up hope. In the vision of Daniel chapter 11, it's a very long chapter with many, many kings listed. God is describing what's going to happen in human history for the next 500 years. But what he's saying is, despite all of these human kings, I am governing history. I put them in place and I take them down. I guide everything that happens. Do we believe that? Or do we only believe that when things are going our way? If you were with us last week, we heard from one of our speakers, Mike, who talked about the church in Sudan. And Sudan is an overwhelmingly majority Muslim country. And for 30 years, they were ruled by a totalitarian Islamic uh, government. That government seized church property, restricted churches, oppressed churches, very much forbid evangelism or any kind of outreach in their communities. But just a few years ago, that regime fell, and there's a new regime, and things have begun to open up. And so we are exploring partnership uh, with those churches to together plant gospel seeds for how they could uh, reach and serve in their communities. So my question is, did God only now become king in Sudan? Or was he ruling and reigning even when the church was oppressed and persecuted and harassed? Do we know how to take comfort from the fact that God is reigning and ruling even when circumstances are bad for a long time? In the book of Daniel, you see this theme of the suffering of the saints. And again, Daniel 11 is going to look forward for 500 years. Do we know how to take comfort in a rule of God who is accomplishing his purposes, even when it means suffering for us? Does this book only speak to ancient people? Or does it have something to say to us? Well, let's look at Daniel's response. Let's see how Daniel responded to this vision. I'll read the next six verses from Daniel, 7, Daniel 10, verse 7, on to verse 12. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. 
My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Our God is a holy God whom we, before whom we tremble in need of his grace. Let's look at Daniel and how he responded to this vision of God, this appearance of God. First, look at his companions, very much like the companions of Paul when Jesus appeared to him. They didn't see the vision, but they knew God was present. And how did they respond? They fled for their lives. They ran away. They were terrified. Even Daniel, who had had visions before, how did the vision leave him? He had no strength. His strength left him. His appearance was changed. When he heard the voice again, he fell to the ground. Now, this is a prophetic encounter with God. It's not a typical experience. But Daniel was in fear and overwhelmed by the presence of God. So look at God's reaction to Daniel, God's response to Daniel. First, he sent an angel who touched him and raised him up. And this shows how God is inviting Daniel into his presence. See, the reality of encountering God has a terrifying aspect to it. So the reassurance that it is God who is inviting us into his presence is beyond essential. Consider what that means this morning when we come to the table. It is the Lord Jesus who invites us into his presence. The angel then says to Daniel that he is greatly loved, highly esteemed. God has heard Daniel's prayer and he's now responding. God had a message to send to Daniel and he sent it through his messenger. That reflects this relationship that God has with Daniel, that God has with his people, a covenant relationship that Daniel praised to God, he sought out God, and God answered and responded. So how do we, re- we respond? How do we respond to an encounter with God? I guess I want to ask the question, why is it that we so rarely fear, that we so rarely feel the need to flee for our lives when we encounter God? Why do we not tremble and only with fear and trepidation approach God. I know we understand that God is merciful and forgiving. We understand the grace of God. But so did Daniel. Daniel knew the mercy and forgiveness and kindness of God. Yes, I agree that with the coming of Jesus, the grace of God has been made clearer. The mechanism of forgiveness is is now explicit, and we understand the way, the reason, the way we can approach God. But Daniel knew most of this and was still afraid. I wonder if we don't often fear God 
because we worship a God who is much smaller than the God of Daniel. I wonder if we worship a God that we presume we understand, because this is a God who is like us, a God that we approve of, a God who is not very threatening. If you take this line of thinking and go all the way to the end, I wonder if we basically worship a God who is the projection of our human cultural values and of our own personal ideals. You know, if we were to do that, we would not be the first culture or the first church in the history of time to do such. But perhaps we don't fear God because we can't conceive of him threatening the deepest part of our being. We believe we know him and what he expects and demands because we reason he must be basically like us. And so the, thing God, the things God wants for me must be basically the same things I want for myself. So the question we must ask is, are we worshiping a God of our own making? A God of our own design? Ironically, if we find that we're doing that, we should be even more afraid. Because if we're worshiping a man-made God, we're in big trouble. The chaos of this world, the confusion we face, is up to us to solve. And we haven't been doing such a great job of that. So what does it mean to worship and fall down before a God who is holy, who is truly other? C.S. Lewis famously said that Aslan is not a tame lion, but he's good. You see, I think we have this idea that we have to be able to understand and know everything about God and somehow control the things he might do and make him predictable. But God is not tame. I'll tell you the story of our second speaker last week, uh, who was born in China, uh, studied in the United States, but his ordination was actually in China. I tempted him to tell the story, which he didn't. But at his ordination service, his father, who was also a minister, prayed the prayer of blessing and prayed that he would have a prison faith. See, his father had served in prison, as did all the previous gener- most of the previous generation of pastors, And now that's happening to the current generation. And his father knew the trust and belief in God that came from trusting, even amidst that evil, God was working good for his people and his kingdom. And to learn the joy of suffering for the faith. And he was praying that for his son, who may or may not have actually been grateful for such a prayer. (laughs) But would we trust the God who would send us to prison? Would we trust a general who would send us on a mission that might threaten our personal health, security, well-being? Do we recognize that God is absolute in his power and in his greatness and in his wisdom? And are we learning to trust God who is other, who is holy, even at the risk of our own personal safety. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus will threaten with significant discipline those churches who do not respond to his word. The wrath he brings upon the enemies of God's people who have the mark of the beast and all that language in Revelation is the same judgment that comes upon the people of God who do not respond to his word. So I think this text invites us 
begs us to ask the question, which God do you worship? Well, we worship the God who is truly king and who is at work in unseen ways throughout our world. I'll conclude with just briefly touching on these last two verses, verses 13 and 14. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is of days yet to come. The kingdoms of this world, even when opposing God's people, cannot overthrow the plans of God. We get this little glimpse of the spiritual battle that Paul talks about when he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, this is that. Now, if you really want to know exactly how that spiritual warfare works, too bad, they don't tell you in the Bible. (laughs) Uh, It gives us a glimpse of what God is doing. But Daniel is not in control of these forces. He doesn't direct or pray or do anything to direct these angelic forces. That's God's work. But he gets a glimpse to what's happening. In the message of Daniel chapter 11, is clear. These kings of Persia and then of Greece and then later of Rome that are warring against the people of God and each other, doing all kinds of terrible, wicked things, they cannot stop the purposes of God. God has a plan that we understand is to bring about the salvation of the world through the offspring, through the Jewish-born Jesus, and the attempts to eradicate that people will not happen. No matter what the prince of Persia or any other demonic or spiritual forces throw, And it reminds us of the reality that behind the human kings and kingdoms, behind the human powers, stands a spiritual power. And the spiritual forces of darkness cannot overcome. They are not able to overcome the purposes of God. That's why our brothers in China love and pray for the security officers, the police, even the president, all the people in power, because it's not them, it's the forces behind them. There are spiritual powers at work, but they cannot frustrate the plan of God. Even this language of the 21 days that appears to be delayed, it does not suggest that the outcome was uncertain, but only that spiritual forces were at work accomplishing God's purpose. Nothing would frustrate or stop God's purpose. So what do we need to do to increase our faith that God will accomplish his purposes? God has sworn it will take place. God has told us about the delay. Again, this delay was hundreds of years from Daniel. And now we know it's been thousands of years since Jesus came. But we know that God has a purpose. He has a purpose to draw people from every nation, every people and language and ethnicity unto himself. So it's patience that causes the delay on God's part, not inattention, and certainly not the forces of evil. So what do we conclude from this as we come to the table? Jesus is the man with the golden sash. Jesus is the son of man who came to demonstrate that God is among us that God stands on our territory in our land and declares the purposes and the will of God and the love of God to his people.
by partaking with him, we proclaim that he is king and he reigns today in our hearts, in our church, in our city, in our world. And thus we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we are announcing that we believe that he is currently reigning in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the unique incarnation of God who has appeared to each one of us to assure us that despite the chaos in the world today, he is governing our world and working at his own purposes, even in and among us. And he has invited you to this table. So we respond by coming with humility, with gratitude, and thanking him for his mercy and grace. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have spoken to us in your word. You have spoken to us by Jesus, who came to demonstrate your presence among us. Father, I pray that you would give us responsive hearts, that we would believe and trust in you, that you're at work, and that we would learn to obey and respond to your word in love and obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.